right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I'm Ben Wager with my co-host Don Gibson. Yeah. And today we're taking a look at films of 1983 Best Picture nominees that did not win. Don's going to look at Victor Victoria and introduce that. And I'm going to introduce uh, Diner. But before we do that, we want to throw a few shout outs to some people who have been very supportive of our little podcast in different ways. So Don, why don't you tell us a little bit about the people who made our new logo? Well, it's actually one guy, but uh, I guess he, he, he works so well, it seems like more. Um, he's a former student of mine that I taught film a few years ago. His name's uh, Max Festa Bianche. And he designed a really quite a lovely lo logo. Um, he's got like... Uh, it's an art deco, um, you know, theater around the corner. So it's got a corner thing and it's got the art deco marquee. And he's put up a couple of posters, one on one side, Full Metal Jacket, the other Citizen Kane. That'd be a good uh, podcast doing those two. But uh, it's great to have some professional looking logos uh, uh, putting us on our way to the top. Thank you. Thank you. We much appreciate your uh, kind and generous donations into helping us legitimize yeah. cinema around the corner as a music coming next i believe yeah. we'll get and yes be be very excited when we launch our intro and outro music which should yeah. be uh, any session now so thanks yeah. again and appreciate it if any other listener support wants to you know give us some help we are always open to it you can go to our twitter account at what is it cinema atc and uh, you can hashtag cinema ATC. That's our Twitter account. So please feel free to uh, give us a shout out at any time uh, and follow us. All right. Well, let's start off by listening to Don introduce Victor Victoria. Go ahead, Don. Uh, so Victor Victoria is, as I said, a film from 1982 and it uh, stars Julie Andrews and uh, produced and directed and written by Blake Edwards, who uh, was her uh, husband. It's cross-gender, um, surprise sort of uh, a comedy musical. Um, it's actually, it was actually based on a film that was made in 33, you know, called Victor und Victoria. So that's the, it's pretty well the same thing, but it's in German. And so it's, it's, it's just a, a comedy of, you know, as they say in the middle of the film, it's a woman pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. And so there's all this, uh, you know, potential zany energy of when's she gonna be caught for, you know, pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. And so that's the premise of the film is this fun energy. And of course the songs, uh, you know, Julie Andrews of course is known for Mary Poppins and Sound of Music and her remarkable voice. She did a couple of films in between that and this. She did uh, Tamarind Seed uh, in 74 and she did Torn Curtain, uh, actually did a Hel Alfred Hitchcock film. But most people, those have kind of slipped off and then she did another film with Blake Edwards right before this called SOB. And that's the film that she famously uh, pulled her top off and exposed her breasts. And, and it was, I think, in 78, 79. And people were shocked because, you know, Julie Andrews, of course, is the, you know, the, the poster girl for naive innocence. And, and the idea of, you know, her doing such a thing was, you know, obviously shocking to the, the movie going audience. And I think the idea of this film as well was this gender bending thing and Julie Andrews, this innocent person portraying such a person had a uh, you know, great pull for the audience. It did very well at the box office. Uh, it was very popular um, and it got nominated for I think seven Oscars and a couple of Golden Globes. It only won for uh, 
the music by Henry Mancini. And it's, as I said, it's, 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 just, it's a fun, zany comedy. Blake Edwards is best known for doing the Pink Panther films um, with Peter Sellers. And when he, when he originally, and he wrote this film for his wife and he thought this is perfect for my wife. And Peter Sellers was supposed to play this guy, Toddy, who is this uh, uh, gay guy, and it's all set in Paris, that he's a struggling performer as well. And he's, they're both struggling to, you know, it's set in the late 30s, uh, sorry, like early 30s in Paris. And they're both struggling to get by and be recognized and be successful. And they're both failing and just barely surviving. Uh, so his role was supposed to be played by Peter Sellers. And uh, it, it wasn't. Um, now I forget the guy's name was uh, Robert, Robert Preston. Preston. Did you? I didn't really. I, I read other films he'd been in, but I didn't recognize him except for this film. Robert Preston. Yeah, he had a huge boom in the '60s. The um, the one with the '76 trombones. And what what's that movie? Um, you got me. Uh, Not like well, me, no. It was. Hold on a second. I'm going to have to look this up. Well, well gonna, go ahead. While you're yeah. Looking. So why? I mean. And he's solid, you know, we're watching it and, you know, he's certainly, you know, a, a good actor and there's obviously lots of, you know, comedy he's got to del deliver, but watching this and knowing that the role was originally intended for Peter Sellers, I really wonder how much better it would have been with, with Peter Sellers because Peter Sellers is so good at the surprise shock, uh, you know, and the, the, de the deadpan reactions when everyone else is shocked. And he's all right. I wouldn't say he's bad, but... Uh, my feeling generally about this film is that it does not hold up very well when you go back and look at it. As I said, there's the Julie Andrew numbers in it, Andrews numbers, and there's a couple of good comic bits and there's a great numbers. I mean, if you like musicals, then, you know, that's obviously a positive thing. He was in um, The Music Man. The Music Man. Okay. Yeah. That was Billy oh, Jones. Oh, man, you're right. Yeah, he was big. He was, I mean, that was a big, big vehicle for him. Uh, yeah. he, and this was the only time he's ever been nominated for something. Was it? He was nominated for this, but he didn't win. Uh, and he'd also been in a, another Blake Edwards film. I think he was in SOB. Uh, this was the he second movie SOB, that he yeah. worked with. Yeah. The reason he took the role is because Peter Sellers died. And I thought he, you know, I thought he did a good job. Um, you know, considering you know Peter Sellers is it can be more of a soft-spoken kind of feminine character, yeah. but Robert Preston is just so you know deep-voiced masculine yeah. guy that i thought it it really you know it it, it kind of gave it more of a uh a certain hilarity especially when he was doing some of the cross-dressing stuff i thought uh it, it played very well i thought he was very very funny um in a lot of the movie is 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 the audiences of the of the people you know is is very much focused on the gay underground scene in paris and so you know because she is playing a, a you know, a, a role where she's female impersonator, you know, much of the audience are, are gay men. And so uh, there's a huge undercurrent of, of um, the whole homosexual underground lifestyle of Paris in the, in the movie. And so, you know, him playing this very kind of masculine looking uh, character as a kind of a queen um, is very, uh, I think it's, I thought it was, you know, I thought it worked. I thought it worked yeah. well with him. Well, the, he does a musical number in the end um, on stage and he basically replaces Julie Andrews and I won't go explaining the whole thing, but Julie Andrews eventually gets outed for not being a man and always being a woman. And then he goes on stage instead and saves the day kind of. And so his uh, scene when he's doing the, when he does the role that everyone expects, is expecting her to do the role is pretty funny. 
and he, he gets that really well. There's just all this sort of confusion about, you know, this and this idea of being gay and, and gay representation um, in film at this time in the early 80s is a new thing. And Hollywood is a little bit tepid about it, a little bit unsure. Boy, but they, I, I'll tell you, they did open the floodgates right around this time when this movie came out. Yeah. There's also uh, Tootsie with, yeah. uh, you know, Hoffman also with the gender bender thing. And then, uh, you know, The World According to Garp with Lithgow. Yeah. So and all fire. They, they opened and, up. They, yeah, they and the crying up. game. So that's, it's interesting. So we actually watched, somebody recommended me this film called Disclosure, which is a documentary essentially of transgender people in film in the last, whatever, Hollywood's history. And you get films like Some Like It Hot, where you have Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon cross-dressing and, and these kinds of things. And, and, and it, the thing is, Victor Victoria, which is, it's later, it's kind of, in terms of this film and the, this documentary called Disclosure, they were pretty tepid in how they, it was just, it was the, the, the cross-dressing transgender homosexual representation was done basically for laughs. And they, you know, as you said, it was, everything was happening now and, and there was new, there was a, it was a change that was happening in it was Hollywood. A trend. It was definitely it a, trend. Was a trend, but they still, they were quite a long way, obviously a long way from where we are now in representation. And because this representation has always been for a laugh and, you know, the notion, you know, so the love interest in this is Jim Garner. Uh, most of us know him probably from the Rockford Files. And, and he's the, he, uh, like you said, with uh, P, uh, Robert Preston. And uh, there's also a guy named Alex Carras, who's the bodyguard. And they're all very man manly men. And they're very, they, they're very, you know, they, they're hairy, big, burly men. And two of them, not, not uh, Jim, sorry, not, I always call him Jim Rockford, uh, James Garner. They're playing, as you said, gay people. And it was quite surprising and zany at the time because, oh my God, there's no way these guys could be like this. And so there was definitely, I guess you'd say the shock value or people just, you know, kind of being really surprised that, you know, and Alex Caras is like a former a well-known football player and the notion of him coming out was, and, and there was, it was a step in the right direction, certainly on the, in the, in, in this, this idea, but uh, it was still quite slapstick and, you know, un undeveloped. It was much more about just laughs. And like, there's these scenes where, you know, Julie Andrews is starving and she can't afford a meal. And so then she just goes to a cafe and then she just eats and eats and eats. And then her plan is she's got a cockroach in her purse. And then as soon as, uh, you know, she's full, she's gonna release the cockroach and then say, there's a cockroach in my dinner, you know, be, get a, a free meal. And then, you know, it's, it's an obvious setup for the cockroach getting released in the restaurant and zaniness is going to follow. But it, it just sort of falls flat because then it does and then she sort of walks away and then everyone's, you know, screaming, oh my God, there's a cockroach and she and, and Toddy just walk out like, well done. And it was just like, there were so many opportunities to have lots of little gags leading up to this thing. And then it was just, just like a montage of Julie Andrews eating and then there was a cockroach. And like, it, for me, it wasn't nearly as strong as the Pink Panther movies where the all these little details are thought out and, and, you know, there's the, the punchline at the end, but in a lot of these scenes, it seemed like it was just the punchline and kind of undeveloped and how these scenes could have been. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's well known that he cranked out that screenplay in a month. So it was a very quickly written. And at that point he had the power to, you know, probably push it through it because he was so successful as a, in the, in the movie business. I found that the technical side of the movie I found was quite, 
distractingly bad on, on, you know, like for instance, the whole thing was shot on set at Pinewood in England. And you could just tell that it was just so kind of the sets were, except I thought the nightclub sets were good, but much of the street scene sets and the hotels and they, they, they just had that kind of thirties chintzy set style. They weren't, you know, you, that you really had to suspend disbelief and you had to, you had to continually remind yourself because the sets just looked so cheap. And interesting enough, the movie was so expensive because of the amount of the amount that they spent on building all that they they didn't use any location, so it was all shot on sets in Pinewood, and it wasn't cheap. But I was it, it for me, it was a little bit of a distraction. I thought the lighting wasn't very good. I you know it just it it felt like a dated, very dated. Even though I was watching it now, even then it, it felt like it was. They weren't, you know, they were foregoing a lot to, to push this vehicle forward and putting a lot on the on the star power and a couple of big scenes. And uh, and they were just kind of, you know, dialing in the rest of the movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think he would argue, Blake Edwards, that what you said about all the set building, I mean, he was mimicking a film that was originally based on a German film and it was set in that time. And that, I mean, it's a perfectly good argument. That's what he wanted the look to be like. But it doesn't, it just, as you said, it just comes across as, I don't know, it almost looked like to me that everyone was putting their time in each day and they were doing their, their, their scenes and they were just relying on Julie Andrews, who's got an amazing voice and she, she sings a great couple of great numbers um, to you know deliver and I guess she does. But as I said, these setups, like when you're doing crazy gag scenes with all sorts of chaos, you, and they have another one where in the in the club Shea Louie where a lot of these things happen, where there's another crazy scene that turns into a brawl and everyone's arrested except for our Jim, James Garner and, and Julie Andrews. And and it's just this crazy zaniness, but it, it comes across like, it looks like they didn't really think it out and they just sort of like moved it through in a very wooden manner. And then there's a scene, so Julie Andrews, James Garner, the, he's, a, he's a prince, he's a, he's a really wealthy guy, he's connected to the mob. And he, he falls in love with Julie Andrews. And when someone says, like, she's a woman, he's uh, sorry, she's a man. He's like, well, I don't care. And that's how much he loves her. And eventually, you know, they end up in the, in the bed together. And what do you, when you said he's a prince, what, what do you mean by that? Well, no, his name, what's his name? King Marshall. His name is King. Well, you know, it's regal. He's a regal. <laughs> you, you, she, he, she played, Julie Andrews' male character was a count from mm-hmm. Poland. But he's a king. Yeah, I think you're mixing, you're mixing some things up here. But uh, well, I'm just saying, well, I just it, and the, what is the character? I don't even know what the character is. He's like this mob guy. I think he might. He was a nightclub owner in Chicago that was was tied to the mob. But I don't know. For me, the character was totally undeveloped. It was just Jim Rockford that wandered on the set and they said, OK, you're going to be a mob guy. So. And so they have the scene where they love each other and they go to bed. To, then right after they, they, they have sex, they're, they're, in, they're in bed talking. And then they're basically, they've just had sex one time and they're talking about their entire lives. The next, like, how are we going to make this work? And, you know, you know, he's like, I'm a mob guy. I can't ha- be in a relationship with what everyone thinks is the man. And she's like, well, I can't in a, in a club person have a relationship with a mob person. But they're planning their entire lives out after one night together. And, I kind of feel like that part of the movie was that that conversation actually I actually kind of like that conversation because they did put in this kind of gender relevance to the roles 
like she, you know, she was standing up for, well, that's great that you're a mafia guy and that you have this club and everything, but I have a career and I'm not ready to give it up, you know? And, I, and having that conversation at that time, uh, when that movie was made, I thought actually that was a little more forward thinking within the movie. I wouldn't, you know what, I wouldn't argue that the, there's a lot of aspects of the film that aren't forward thinking. It just seems that the, the script and there's so many aspects to it that needed a lot more going over to get the subtleties to get us into the story. And I was not like, Julie Andrews, like in the beginning, she can't pay her rent and she, she comes home to her apartment and there's a scene where she's like, she's basically gonna have sex with this guy that owns the hotel. And then, you know, happenstance happens, she doesn't have to. And I'm like, what is, why was that scene in there? So all these, I think you're right. She wants to affirm herself. And it's interesting. She only can affirm herself pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. And that's interesting because, you know, she's, no one's disputing she's got an amazing voice. It's almost like her voice is too good. And it's only, she only had the job as a voice, her with her great voice, if she's a man pretending to be a woman. So the themes, I think, are pretty solid. It's just some of the scenes you're just watching and I'm like, what is, what's going on here? So not believable, I guess. Yeah. I was disappointed, man, I have to say. Yeah. It was, there was a lot of filler. I think there was a lot of filler to get yeah. to, the, to the big key scenes in the movie. Because there's, there's a few key scenes and then the rest of the movie does feel a little bit like filler. Yeah. You know, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of uh, well-developed subplots no. within, the, within the movie. And, you know, I wasn't particularly impressed with it either. You know, Julie Andrews is an amazing talent. That's that you could see for sure. But, you know, like you said, otherwise, I just, I, I, I could have not watched that, that film. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I was, uh, I was kind of, I'd never seen it and I was pretty excited. And, you know, comparing it to the last film that I talked about last time was Pennies from Heaven. And I'm not a musical guy. Like I, and one of the things I really like about this podcast is, you know, I do like films and I've watched them a lot, but I like going back to see films that I didn't see and seeing them. And, you know, for the podcast, I'm, and I'm always excited and Pennies for Heaven. I was like, okay, let's from heaven. I'll, you know, and you know, the thing that Roger Ebert said is as long as there's three really good scenes and you can, you know, there's aspects you like, it's, it's a really good film. And Pennies from Heaven fulfilled that hundred percent. And I'm not, I don't really see musicals generally. It's not my genre. And I, I don't think there was one good scene. And I mean, a couple, there's Julianne is obviously she's a great singer, but I, I wouldn't say there was any good scenes with her singing and they were just, you know, good performances. So I was, yeah, I could have not seen it, but I'm glad I did because it's always good to, to expand your horizons. All right. Well, I think we, we gave a, a good, good take on this film. Let's, let's move on to our next film, which is Diner a 1982 film that was written and directed by Barry Levinson, produced by Jerry Weintraub, and had an, uh, an ensemble cast that uh, was uh, not well known at the time, but uh, throughout the next decade or two uh, was a very, very uh, successful cast in regards to their careers. Uh, Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Mickey Rourke, Kevin Bacon, Timothy Daly, Ellen Barkin, Paul Reiser, uh, one way or another, all of these, um, some of them rose up to superstars, but all of them very successful careers that you could uh, go back and look at many, many vehicles that they were in, um, even both uh, television and in film. So it was in, in the sense that the, uh, the film was a real um, career starter for a lot of different people because, uh, you know, Barry Levinson, uh, who wrote and directed the film is, uh, you know, now when we think of Barry Levinson, we think of movies like um, 
Rain Man, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, Avalon, but it was Avalon, no one. Liberty Heights, Tin Men. Oh, there were yeah. he, he really sets a lot of things in Baltimore. Um, yeah. And this this film was made at the same nineteen eighty two, and uh, the film is the premise of the film is basically um, it's the the late fifties uh, in Baltimore. And these young men all, uh, they went to um, neighborhood schools together, uh, you know, middle school, high school. Uh, they, they have s- s- very strong grounded friendships, um, even as they are moving on in their uh, post high school, college, post college careers, they're still very much connected. And what connects them is this social anchor, which is the diner, which is at the time in the 50s. And I will tell you that. Uh, you know, my mother loved this movie and she loved this movie because this is exactly how she was raised at the same time, at the same age, going to the diner with her friends. This was the pinnacle of their social life was hanging out at the diner and having these talks with them and just spending all, you know, night drinking coffee and eating French fries and having that kind of commonality of where they hung out. And, that, and this was very much the culture, on, especially on the East Coast. Uh, in these northeastern industrial cities, you know, the diner was very much a center point for for kids at, uh, in the 50s. Uh, so this, you know, this was how Barry Levinson's life was growing up in Baltimore in the 50s. And so he really shared an authentic experience. And, you know, a lot of people have asked, you know, which of the characters was, you know, uh, Barry Levinson. And Barry always used to say that of all the characters, he was probably most None of them were exactly him, but Timothy Daly, who plays the 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 man, the young man who comes back from college, and the premise of the, the movie, I will tell you, is that they all got back together, mostly because uh, Steve Gutenberg's character is getting married, and so you know um, Timothy Daly's character comes back from college. He's having um, a platonic he has a platonic friendship with a, a woman that they also is considered one of his best friends as a female, but then they, they had it like a, a hookup in New York a month earlier. And, and there's a little subplot about her being pregnant and him trying to deal with managing that this, this platonic friendship had, you know, an intimate moment, but then it turns out that she was impregnated. Uh, and then other side, uh, Mickey Rourke plays a uh, kind of the good looking uh the good-looking playboy of the group. He's a hairstylist by day, going trying to go to law school at night. Um, but he's also a degenerate gambler, and so he's always betting on things, and he's always trying to manipulate the bets. And so there's a lot of subplots dealing with him and, and him trying to get out of trouble with with his uh, loan shark bet guys, and also trying to manipulate these bets uh, where he's you know basically using his playboyness as a way to make more money by um, almost sexually uh, assaulting women in, in, in a certain way, like, you know, setting up these, these horrible situations where, um, you know, he's using these women to try and, and make money off the bets. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about those specifically as we- I want to jump in on that right now. Let's talk about that now. Well, let's, let's, let's you know, because it's not the, it's a subplot of the movie. It's not the, it's, it's you know, Daniel Stern is the only uh, character who plays a married man and not exactly comfortable yet in his marriage he's married to ellen barkin he should be comfortable being married to ellen barkin but um she plays uh you know a character who isn't also is is they're having a lot of stress in their marriage because they're not 
they haven't settled into each other yet. They don't have a natural comfort with each other. They don't, they don't feel like having conversations that are meaningful. He still wants to be with his friends. She doesn't know how to kind of fill that gap. Kevin Bacon, he plays like the kind of, he seems like the Gentile of the group almost in that he, he, he plays like a, a rich trust fund kid who has a drinking problem and a fancy car It's self-destructive behavior. And he's just kind of barely hanging on to society. And these guys are his anchor to kind of, they're always watching his back and trying to keep straighten him out. And, and, you know, the movie starts with him in the basement of a dance, breaking the glass out of the windows in the basement. Uh, and some of his friends have to come down there and say, Hey man, what are you doing? Stop doing that. You know? And then Paul Reiser, who plays a very minor character originally, but it kind of builds into the, to the ensemble very well, because, you know, he is kind of the stand-up in the, in the group. He, he has the fastest wit and he, you know, Paul Reiser is naturally a stand-up comedian. And so these characters kind of build into this, this uh, very dynamic relationship of this moment in their lives around Steve Gutenberg's upcoming nuptials. And, you know, so we, we get the snapshot of their lives together. And it's very interesting because, you know, Barry Levinson, to set this movie up, he brought them in a week early. He rehearsed with them like an hour a day, but then told them, just go hang out, go, go see Baltimore, build these friendships and relationships. And so one of the things I feel that you see in this film that is very authentic is the friendships amongst these guys and the way that they uh, interact. And a lot of that's happening in the diner. And the interesting thing about that is Barry intentionally built the film schedule where the diner scenes were all done at the last part of the movie. And so the strongest development of the relationships in the film that are shot throughout the film, but uh, that you see throughout the film, but are actually shot at the end are all these diner scenes. And so no matter what happens, they're always going back to the diner and, and it's an all night experience for them. So most of the film, I think there's maybe one or two daylight shots in this whole film, but the entire film was basically shot at night because these guys always end their evenings by going to the diner. They see the same group of, of mostly other men who are hanging out at the diner as well. And they have relationships knowing these guys and, and it's just like their hangout spot. And that, authenticity of what life was like back then is really felt throughout the movie and it is i think one of the pillars to the movie is is that you know he, he captures that moment in time in these northeastern cities in the 50s and how these how these lives were impacted by the friendships and, and how that diner was the core to uh you know cementing everything together within their lives so yes the movie um it's the first vehicle for Barry Levinson as a director, and he's raw. You know, the way that it's written, the way that um, he interweaves these subplots, you know, there's a lot of pressure at that time to make a Porky's kind of movie because that was a huge successful movie, and that's what a lot of people wanted was this sexual, let's run around town trying to get laid type of movie. And that's not what Barry Levinson was making. And a lot of the studio execs were pressuring him to get it to that. And they wanted it edited to that. And they were disappointed when he produced this vehicle that was not what they intended. And it took a, a lot of manipulation and connections with film reviewers and to even get this thing into the movies. Uh, you know, they only opened it up in one film palace in New York, but then it started breaking all these records and it kind of opened up, but they never 
they never made more than 200 prints of this film. And it never, even in by 2012, it still wasn't even on Blu-ray. And so the commitment to the film in MGM's eye was this is like a wacky independent foreign film kind of vibe. And they never really supported it because it wasn't the vehicle they wanted to see at the time. Yeah, well, you've said a lot there. There's a bunch of things I want to jump into. So the Porky's thing is really interesting because as you said, the, the, when they, when the, when the executives saw it, they're like, we're not, we're not releasing this thing because this is not Porky's. These guys aren't sneaking into bathrooms and we don't have these moments where we see topless women running around. Um, and so they were really disappointed, but the New York, especially the New York film critics were all over it, gave incredible reviews. And it's because of the reviews that the film was ever released. And, you know, this film, as you said, I think this film, I don't know, what did it do? It did made like 15 million. So it, it did okay in the I'm end. Like 5.5 million, I think. It shot yeah, so it, it, it actually, you know. Half a million under budget on this. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. And Levinson was known as a guy that can deliver a film on budget, which, you know, then he made a bunch of films and then he started getting his identity. But yeah, like Porky's, this film ain't no Porky's. And I mean that in a couple of ways. Porky's had like a $3 million budget and it made like 200 million. And I, one film, if you ever bring Porky's up, I, I won't, well, maybe I would, but that film is terrible. And it's just about a bunch of, it's, a, it's just a setup for, you know, it's, a, it's not a good film with guys it's looking like, through it people. It was like the American Pie of like the 1980s, you know? Well, I, I'd say it's quite a bit worse than American Pie because at least American Pie has got some, some subtlety. I don't know if yeah. say too much, but more than Porky's. And, you know, there's a guy in Porky's named Meat and 20 guesses why his name's Meat. Anyway, so this film, the subtlety, uh, as you said, so the diner stuff in this film is 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 really good, and lots of people, uh, lots of filmmakers, lots of people say Seinfeld. This inspires Seinfeld because people sitting around and talking. When people saw the film, they're like, "What is this?" And you know, Reservoir Dogs, the opening sequence of who's going to leave a tip. All this. Lots of people have talked about, they all want to do their Barry Levinson moment of all these people. There's these scenes where they're just talking about, are you going to eat your roast beef sandwich, which yeah. is a well-known scene. And it goes on forever. And, you know, depending on your, you know, how much you like those kinds of scenes, it's really effective, genuine dialogue that doesn't really have, it has a purpose in developing the relationships of the guys. And that's about it. It's just this repetitious stuff that goes around and around and around. Much and of that's improv. Why the film is so good. Much, much of it improv. Much of it improv. And Kevin Bacon talked about that. Like he said, and his character, you'll notice, he says so little. He, he, he's just always staring there. Looks totally drunk like he's going to fall over. But in interviews, he says he wasn't comfortable with, with improv. And so he developed this persona of not speaking, which actually kind of works for his character. So... Um, he said he didn't really like, he, he liked knowing his lines and doing what he's supposed to do. And the other guys, as you said, Paul Reiser, who speaks constantly in these improv scenes, uh, that's what he's really good at. And that's where, and it's interesting, Paul Reiser's character is so small in this film. We, we know nothing about his background. He just talks a lot in the diner. We never, his character is really not developed, but he just, and he's, he speaks at the wedding in the end. He does stand up essentially, uh, but his character's not developed. So he's a, he's a, I, I remembered him, Originally, is like, oh, there's a lot of Paul Reiser in this, and there's very little. He just had a strong impact in the moments that he was in the scenes. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, for me, like when I, I saw it when it came out, and, you know, I was in college then, and uh, it was certainly a film talked about in, in college circuits. Everyone was like, have you seen this film? And, and I think the film holds up really well with the diner scenes. I think there's a lot of problems with character development. Like, let's talk about Mickey Rourke Boogie, his character. Um, 
highly difficult character to root for in any way whatsoever. So he has a scene with his girl and there's a whole bet. This is a well-known scene in it as well. He bets everyone, I'm gonna, this girl that's gorgeous that no one, she'll never have sex with him. He says, I bet you she's gonna touch my penis. And so what he does is he puts his penis, his erection into the bottom of the popcorn box and then she keeps in, eating in a popcorn. crowded movie theater in a crowded movie theater. And then his friends are watching the side. And, and so then there's a scene where she's reaching in the popcorn box and eventually touches his penis. And there's a big argument whether he wins the bet or not, because of course the, you know, the thought of course is that she'd be willingly doing this, not just accidentally with that. And so when you think about that, I mean, first of all, <laughs> that's, he's going to be arrested and, then there's a whole sequence of her, him explaining it to her. In the like, women's bathroom. In the women's bathroom. In the women's bathroom. And then she accepts the explanation. He says that it's just so beautiful. Like, I didn't know what to do with my penis and it hurt so much. So then I, I took it out and it popped up through it. And then she accepts it and he, she leaves with him. I don't know if anything happens. But, but that, uh, you know, the naive innocence of that time, he, he's playing a lot of that. He's playing on that. You know, she's a, she was a, the classic good girl and he... And he was a predator, and he is a predator. And predator. You see that, and the way they filmed it, it was very, you know, like you're waiting. You know what's going to happen, and she keeps reaching for the popcorn. And it was like it was exactly. like it was like Jaws, man. It was like dun dun dun. Right, <laughs> and the way it's done is pretty good. But when you're watching it today, there's these moments, like, and then there's a. I don't want to get into all the plot aspects, but there's a moment where he's actually going to take Daniel Stern's wife, and she's unhappy with him, and they're going to go have sex together and it's complicated, but eventually he doesn't do it. And then, but he's told her, and they previously had, you know, a fling or they've had sex together before, before she got married. And, she, and he's told her, he's like, she said, was I good? And he says, you, you rank right up there. And I was like, what, what is that? That doesn't make, that makes her feel better. I was, and well, he keeps she, saying. He was like, a bad Thank girl. She was a bad girl. Yeah, I know. He had he a was a she guy. had a reputation and he was a fun guy. And he and was the, 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 you know, the 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 total the the brilliance of that scene is is that you know he's making this bet that he's gonna lay that same blonde woman that he was supposed to have um, you know, with the popcorn and the penis thing. But it turned now he's making a bet that I'm gonna, you know, he's gonna close the deal. And one of the guys has got to be in the apartment in the closet hiding to confirm that it happened. And he gets her to wear a blonde wig to, so that if they do see her before they get into the bedroom, that they'll think that it's the, that's, it's the woman that he's supposed to be having sex with. But it turns out that uh, Fenwick, the Kevin Bacon character is the guy who's gonna, cause it's gonna happen in his apartment. The Daniel Stern character who's actually married to the Elton Barkin joins him in the closet at the last minute. He says, oh, come on, man, let me go with you. And so it turns out that if they were going to have sex in that room at that time, he, he, the husband of the character was going to inadvertently see his wife having sex with Mickey Ward. It was brilliant. The, the whole idea of that was, it was very well done. And thank God, you know, it didn't go through because Mickey Ward had actually dropped into a conscience for a moment and, and, and said, I can't do it and, and took her back. And, and she was like, well, thanks for being honest. And then she says this other thing, was I one of your best or whatever, all that stuff you said before. And, um, no. But I thought, you know, I thought that it was, it just, it danced along the perfect amount of appropriateness or inappropriateness that you would see. Because nowadays, if they had shown that film, they'd gone through that whole thing. And it would, the funny part would have been him reacting to his wife having, you know, it would have been like a, 
a Judd Apatow super bad kind of thing or something. But which, by the way, Judd Apatow, very influenced by Barry Levinson. <laughs> very true. Yeah, it is. So, I, you know, but I don't know. Like, I would really argue with their, what was their problem in their, in their marriage? I didn't even really, I mean, he wanted to just chat, as you said, like they're, they were young. And so he wanted, she didn't know how important records were him and this, this theme of records. They didn't and, know each other well enough yet. They don't world. know each other, but that for me, the, the whole notion of her then going back to one of his friends and having sex with him it really, it made, it, it, there was, it created a darkness in the film that I didn't see why that was going to be there. And it certainly made us question Ellen Barkin. As you said, she was certainly something before that she was now. I don't know. And, 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 you know, as you say, you can't, you know, project standards of today on, on standards of, you know, 70 years ago. But it, it certainly creates, uh, you know, it makes Mickey Rourke, in my mind, look Pretty terrible. Well, not um, Mickey Rourke. Not Mickey Rourke. Why not Mickey Rourke? Because he's the actor. He's not the character. Okay, boogie. Yeah, I'm just saying his character. And, and I just, and I, I thought his, and all his swat, okay, here's the, here's the scene with Mickey, well, sorry, Boog, is they're driving along this empty road and there's this woman, Jane Chisholm. I just remember the name because of what she says in the yes. scene. But she's riding on a horse and this guy's driving beside and like, hey, hey, like your horse, like your horse. And like, he's harassing this woman. She clearly doesn't want to talk to him. And she won't, he won't stop. She finally stops. And then she says, remember my name? Because the Chisholm Trail. And he doesn't know what the Chisholm Trail is. And, and so then later on, you know, you know, Mickey, uh, sorry, Boogie has gone through all these issues and he's, you know, he's okay now. He just shows up on a horse near the end of the film and he's just riding along with this. He literally of, pursues her. I know, but I was just like, what? For me, that scene was just like, that's a scene that should not be in this film, but it, you know, I, and you know, she ended up she ended up being his date to Stephen Gutenberg's wedding. Fair enough. Okay, so I don't you look the guy. The guy was an enigma, man. He he he's a Fonzie. That's what he is. He's a Fonzie. But I think it works really well on a TV show. So what you're talking about the diner, and everything, you know, uh, whoever uh, Happy the, George George Lucas, you know, created American Graffiti with Al's Diner, and then it turned into Happy Days. Same concept, everyone, but they're younger. They're, those are high school, early college, and this is like college. And that's really. also the Midwest, not the East Coast. I know, I know, I know it's different, but it's the same concept. Anyway, the Mickey Rourke Boog character is very much like Fonzie that just gets all the girls. And But it works in TV where it's like, you know, a caricature. The character that I love that really holds up really well, and I think he never made another, well, well that's unfair. Steve Gutenberg's character, he has, he's the guy getting married and he has this 160 question set of questions for this, his fiance, all based on the Indiana, uh, football and the Indianapolis Colts, which is his team, Baltimore Colts. What am I saying? The Indianapolis Colts now. Yeah. They were then the Baltimore Colts. And the marriage um, test. it was the marriage test. The marriage test. And it's really, I mean, it's so insanely stupid. It's funny. And she has to get 65% on this. Otherwise he won't marry her. And there's a big scene and, and, and she's then, put and it off for months. So it's like literally put it off. before the wedding. Yeah. And the questions are insane. We hear like five or six of the questions and everyone, all the guys are listening and like, I wouldn't get these answers. Even his father it's, comes down to the basement and he's like, I wrote that question. Yeah. <laughs> so that sequence of, of that's that craziness, I think is really funny. And there's a scene with Gutenberg when um, his buddy gets into town, wakes him up, but he's, it's two 30. He hasn't gotten up. He wakes up. The first thing he does is have a cigarette. We see him smoking a cigarette and then brushing his teeth and smoking a cigarette. So he's, and there's a great argument scene with his mother and, 
really funny. My favorite branding is a knife, get out of my house. And so this, this humor, I think still works really well. And then he, his buddy takes him to a Bergman film, seventh seal. And he's like five minutes into it. And then he's like, who's that on the beach? And then his friend says, that's death. You know, he's obviously all dressed up and crazy looking. It's a, you know, a European not so film. And uh, then he says, I've been to Atlantic City 10 times and I've never seen Death on the Beach once. And then, you know, the next time we see him, he's sound asleep in the theater. He, he can't, doesn't understand Bergman at all. And I, I thought his character was really funny because really consistent. All the fact that he's revealed to be a virgin, all that stuff. So I loved his character. I think his character's solid. I thought all, I thought all the characters were good. I, I mean, I didn't, I liked Mickey Rourke's character. I accepted that he was deeply flawed. It was established, you know, the same with Bacon's character. Uh, they, you know, everybody had, there was no perfect character. I, if anybody was close to perfect, Timothy um, Daly might've been, you know, because except for his little subplot with his impregnated woman friend you know i i felt like all the characters were for i thought they were you know for the for an ensemble cast they were developed very well the, the intertwining of the subplot stories were very good and some of the stuff he wrote like five minutes he's you know because mickey work and steve gutenberg didn't have a scene together so they put that scene together with the virgin discussion yeah. that's that came up out of a discussion where they said we'd like to be in a scene together because we we have a strong connection you know i think barry was you know winging a lot of he didn't you know this was his first vehicle he was winging a lot of stuff and i'm telling you i thought it was fantastic and i still as much as you want to throw the me too movement into this this discussion i think that you can't do it because it's a period piece about a time that you know was very different and it, it's very hard to insert that and you you had said before we started recording this that you would come to the defense of this argument and i'm waiting to hear that and i haven't heard it oh well i got more but i mean we couldn't we don't want to go too long because that's we're getting a little bit but i the other thing is also white privilege we have two black characters in this film one is the maid at steve gertenberg's house or i forget his character's name and she we just see her twice like cleaning stuff and then we see the saxophone player, saxophonist, as they say, at the burlesque club. And then he, when the, they, they, there's a scene where they play a piano, everyone goes crazy, has a great time. And there's also the, the, the sad prostitute, that's, she's a crazy character that does not work. And so Baltimore is an incredibly, there's, is a, that's, a, that's a city with a very large black population. And for them just to represent them as these two things, I mean, maybe that's the world they live in, but it's a world that when you look at it now, it's a little bit cringeworthy of these white privileged guys and they're misogynist. They're definitely misogynistic the way they talk about women. And I watched this film with my wife. There's a lot of scenes where like, I mean, the banter in the diner holds up really well. And when it's lighthearted and, and, and funny banter between them, but the way they talk about women and the way there's just this total indifference to anything but their world, it's, a little bit cringeworthy at times. Well, I you know, I, I will say that uh, Baltimore is one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. So, I mean, if you watch The Wire, with the exception of politicians and policemen uh, and, and some stevedore dock workers, the entire, that movie was very segregated as well in regards to the amount of white characters versus, Fair you enough. know, and, and it's a, it's a segregated place. And, and, you know, Barry Levinson wrote about what he knew and what he experienced. And he didn't live in The Wire. He lived in, uh, you know, Liberty Heights and Avalon. And even when you talk to another very famous Baltimore guy, John Waters, and, and Barry Levinson and John Waters have gotten together and talked about their experiences. 
you wouldn't think that these guys lived in the same city from the way they talk about their experience. He, you know, Barry Levinson has said that until he was in, in his early teens, he thought everybody was Jewish in Baltimore because that's all he knew. His whole neighborhood was Jewish. Everybody was Jewish. And that's the way it was. And that's one very interesting thing about the film is there's not a single talk about them. There's no discussion about them being Jewish at all the entire film, except in the end where they're all wearing yarmulkes and there's a, it's clearly a Jewish wedding. And, but there's no issue about them being Jewish, which I thought was really interesting because there's not a lot of references, as you said, it's representing. And I'm not, like, I don't think he's doing things and it's like this white privilege and Me Too stuff is definitely, you know, contemporary. But what I'm saying is if you're, you're going to show this film, I think people have to be a little bit, you know, aware of what it's representing. This kind of script today, just I don't think it would get produced because they would just say we're not going to we're not going to put money behind this project because well, it's representing I mean, something that's. I, uh, I never heard any of these arguments when we watched The Godfather, or you know any these. I mean, you could you could make the same arguments for some very great movies that were filmed in the seventies as well that are are represent the same type of situation as that you're pointing out now about this movie in the early 80s so i don't know like the godfather is very different because you're talking about they're talking about humanizing the mob we're looking at young guys that are somewhat educated we know they're not all going to college but you know they you know they were grown up in somewhat affluent neighborhoods and they're supposed to be a little bit more aware of something in, the 50s, in their world in the 50s in the 50s yeah no, no i'm not disputing that i'm not yeah. and i'm not you're right uh, but it's not like the godfather the godfather's or i could say good fellows good fellows like the only black character samuel L. jackson gets killed for screwing up the the heist you're right but you're talking about mobsters and we're, this is not a film about mobsters no, but and I'm, represent- I'm just, you know does it matter if you're trying to this premise of me too or social justice or whatever you think should I, be I, or out of the movie uh, I think when you're just looking at people and it's like a, it's a human story of, you know, a coming of age film. And if we're looking at them as just people for them to have basically, you know, they're not, they're terrible with women and have no awareness of, you know, I realize I don't know, I, the, the segregation, I guess they accepted it because they grew up in it. But I mean, Maryland is a Southern state. You know, that, right? I know, I know, but I, I'm just saying when you look at it now, you're like, wait a minute, and you're thinking about these things and these guys, their problems just don't seem, you know, that relevant. And you're just wondering, as I said, when it's lighthearted and it's in the diner, I think it works really well. But when they're developing their characters and like Boogie, not, I think personally, Boogie d- d- doesn't pay a, a large debt. I wanted him to get beaten up. And the fact that he's, he gets out of being beaten up. As a viewer, I'm disappointed because what has this guy done to deserve not to get beaten up? I have no clue. Well, apparently Bagel liked him and he owed a he owed something to his father or something, you know, or father was a nice guy and the mother said, please look out for my son. Yeah, I, so, I, I know so, how they made it work, but care of each other back then. So, you know. Yeah, I know. It just I don't know, uh, man. I just maybe there's a Canadian American thing here where you, you don't understand our history very well because you know, desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education, 54. This is a few years after that. This is a Southern state. You know, Maryland is a Southern state. I think there's a lot of things here that maybe, you know, you're, you just, that that's not there for you. So. No, no, know. I get it. I am Canadian. I didn't grow up in Baltimore. I'm not arguing that I grew up in Baltimore, but I'm talking about representation of their experience. So for example, the Kevin Bacon character, um, I think he's great when we see him 
watching that show. It was called College Bowl, and it's this game show where yeah. it, you know it's like it Jeopardy. It's an old school version of Jeopardy, and he just knows all the answers, and he's this lost character, and he's really quite intelligent. He's very sharp, and he's very aware, but he just doesn't know what he's doing in his life, and he's you know he's whatever he's on track to not do so well in his life. I guess we don't really know. Um, and so those kind of scenes, I think, are very, uh, they work really well. Um, but it's this, when they're talking about women and when you're looking at this, their, their interactions in there, and you're just, you're just thinking, these guys are so, they, they're kind of irritating. And they, like, I don't root for them. Like, I rooted for Steve Gutenberg. Well, he's kind of just silly and how crazily, you know, off he is. But like a guy like uh, the Boogie character, uh, Mickey Rourke, I'm not rooting for him. And I, I think we're supposed to be rooting for him. So that's where I think it's, you know, whether I have a different background or not, like I think you can see films from that era. And even though obviously things have changed in the way films are representing things, we talked about Victoria and representation of, of homosexual, transgender, and all these things have changed dramatically since then. And it does change, but I think that's why Victor Victoria doesn't work because it's kind of, kind of hollow and a little bit superficial how it does it. I think, I don't know. I, I love the, the banter, but I think those, the, the, the characters, I just don't, I don't connect with them. And I'm thinking, you know, stop yeah. harassing women. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a certain suspension of PC that probably had to happen. I guess it depends on the audience of, you know, who you're watching it with too can influence that yeah. as well. And so, but overall, I, I, I've loved why well, i think i want i enjoyed this movie more now than i did the last time i saw it so i mean i i really i i just i'm the opposite you know and it really felt good to see the movie again and and you know my mother connected too because my mother told me how much this was her life as a teenager so i had that connection as well and then the the other thing that i i i don't know if this is i'm a huge wire fan that the wire was an amazing series and there's this one part at the end of the movie where there's a horse and cart kind of driving by the diner that they with the stripper in or whatever and it's just carrying some some bed like some houseware stuff and i just remember that in the wire even though this was like in uh you know the 2000s there was this horse and cart subplot within there like this guy was using a horse and cart to kind of get used goods and junk and stuff and uh and it just and i was like i wonder if, if the wire people were influenced by uh, the diner because that that they that they had a horse and cart scene in a Baltimore movie based movie which is very interesting but yeah. you know that's just a very I'm just stringing together some theories there but I, I think that's you know an interesting point I think you're right that it really makes it, it the 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 ambiance of the the setting the time is very clearly set I agree with that it makes you feel like you're in 50s Baltimore for sure it was very believable yeah. All right. Well, I think we covered those movies very well. And we did, you know, it looks like we had a little bit of a disagreement on our diner movie, but it, yeah, it happens. But, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend you see it. And uh, Victor Victoria, you know, if you like Julie Andrews a lot and, you know, you wanted to see some, and also if you like, a, you know, a Blake like Edwards. Edwards movie, you know, it might, it, it might do something for you. I don't know. So I will say that, you know, we are going to change course a little bit. Uh, coming up in our next uh, episode, we're going to look at some of the movies during the awards season for 2021. And so our next um, episode, we'll be taking a look at some of the categories 
of the awards movies that are coming up for, I guess, the Oscars and possibly what came out of the uh, Golden Globes. So I hope that you enjoyed our episode and we'll see you next time on Cinema Around the Corner. See you later.